courage. I learned it from my adoptive mom. Hold my hand. You hold my hand. <laughs> Learn about adopting a team from foster care at AdoptUSKids.org. You can't imagine the reward. Brought to you by AdoptUSKids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Potomac Watch. Senate negotiators late Sunday released the text of their bill on border security and military aid to allies. But does it have any chance of passing? James Lankford, Republican, Kirsten Sinema, The Independent, and Chris Murphy, the Democrat, released the text after months of their negotiation. President Biden and Mitch McConnell both endorsed the bill, but critics on the GOP right and the Democratic left are already attacking it for different reasons, even before they have had a chance to fully read it. We'll talk about the merits and the politics of this bill and the border security issue in today's Potomac Watch podcast. Welcome to you all. I'm Paul Gigo with the Wall Street Journal editorial page, and I'm here with Kim Strassel and Kate Batchelder, who have been following this negotiation all along and trying to delve into this very long bill, 380 pages, 280 pages of it are on border security. And since the final draft was released only Sunday night, we are still trying to absorb all the details and the fine prints. And forgive us, dear listeners, if we aren't <laughs> fully aware of all of the nuances. But overall, if I am permitted a editorial comment, I can say that this is the most restrictive immigration border security bill in 100 years since the 1920s. I wasn't alive then, but I did read about it. And we really haven't seen anything like it. It's often compared now by critics say, oh, well, this is just like the 2013 Gang of Eight Senate bill <laughs> that passed the Senate but died in the House. This is the whole solar system removed from that bill. Okay, I mean, it's not even close. There's nothing here on any pathway to citizenship or pathway to green cards for illegals who are here. There's nothing for the dreamers who were brought here as children illegally and now are adults and don't want to be deported. Nothing at all. This is a security-only bill. And it's something that would be hard to have imagined even four months ago, I think, when the negotiations began. Kim, so what's your impression? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. When you think about the fact that a couple months ago, Chuck Schumer was saying there will not be any policy whatsoever in this bill that we come up with. We'll throw some more money at the border, but that's it. And now we have this. Anyone who is suggesting that this is equivalent to the prior gang of eight either wasn't there or is willfully misleading people or just doesn't know what they're talking about. I think just a couple of highlights I'm going to point out here to give a flavor of that. So right now, you know, if you show up at the board, you come across, you're essentially waved through, you're given a work permit upon stepping foot on American soil, and then everything is so backlogged, you get told, we'll see you maybe in seven or 10 years. For their asylum hearing. Their official hearing, yeah. correct? And in the meantime, that's seven or 10 years where people can have children on American soil, develop lives, uh, jobs become that much harder to ever remove them again if they don't meet the threshold at that ultimate asylum hearing. Under this new situation, you're going to show up immediately, be screened by an asylum officer. There's going to be a higher standard that you have to hit when it comes to credible fear. There now has to be a, quote, reasonable possibility that you are in danger. We could get into the distinctions of that, but that is a much higher standard. One of the things that will also count is, could you have relocated in your country of origin to have escaped whatever it is that you have a fear of? And then if you 
don't meet those standards, you will be turned away. If you are offered to get through that first screening, you will then receive an actual interview as to whether or not to make a final adjudication on this within 90 days. And those things will also include background checks and another of other higher standards, all of which are going to make it tougher to come and stay in the United States, significantly more so. Also, there's going to be more detention beds, a greater emphasis on keeping people in detention while they wait for that final hearing, and a lot more emphasis as well for those who really can't be kept in detention on alternatives to detention that require monitoring, curfews, maybe ankle bracelets, and very stiff penalties if you don't show up for that interview. And then a whole bunch of mechanisms as well where the border shuts down if the numbers get too high. Yeah, we can go through that so-called emergency border shutdown bill in a bit. But Kate, what Kim is talking about is essentially the end of what has been called catch and release, that you go into the United States you actually seek out a border patrol agent because you want to then be able to make an asylum declaration. They say, what's your credible fear? They give you a very cursory interview and then they go, okay, and release you into the interior of the United States. And you wait four years, five years, seven years, 10 years, whatever it is, a very long time. Now, this under expedited removal provisions of this bill, there will be a 90-day adjudication. So why this matters in particular is it, it really changes the incentives for migrants to come here because now the incentive is if they take the time, take the risk, take the expense of paying off those uh, coyotes, the gangs that escort them to the border, they can pretty much figure they're going to make it here. But now, under this bill, they would have a much, much stronger chance of being deported. Right. I think that's right. I mean, if you look at how some of these new asylum screenings would work, like we've been talking about, you have to pass just a much higher standard at the beginning of the screening process, which is how it should be. It's worked for so long now is if you seem even vaguely credible to have asylum that you get released into the interior. And that backlog of people who are waiting for their hearings has just gotten so long that that's why it takes seven, eight, 10 years to get people through this system. So to your point, what matters here is the underlying incentives for folks to come to the border. Now, Republicans have been saying, including Donald Trump in 2018, said he needed a change in the underlying law to get a control of the asylum process. Because the truth is, you could build a wall, but if you can just go up to a border agent and claim asylum, that loophole can be exploited. So you need to fix this underlying process. And Republicans have wanted to do that for some time now. So that is maybe a political question, but it does hammer home that I think the asylum provisions are the core of this law and are the things that you can't just rely on an executive to do. All right, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we'll talk more about the merits and the politics of this Senate border bill when we come back. Courage. I learned it from my adoptive mom. Hold my hand. You hold my hand. <laughs> Learn about adopting a team from foster care at AdoptUSKids.org. You can't imagine the reward. Brought to you by AdoptUSKids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. Welcome back. I'm Paul Gigot with Kate O'Dell and Kim Strassel here talking about the merits and the politics of the new Senate bill on border security and aid to Ukraine. Let's listen to James Lankford. He's the Republican senator from Oklahoma who has been the lead negotiator for the GOP on this bill. Are we as Republicans going to have press conferences and complain the border's bad and then intentionally leave it open after the worst month in American history in December? 
Now we've got to actually determine, are we going to just complain about things or are we going to actually address and to change as many things as we can? If we have the shot, and it's amazing to me, if, if I go back two months ago and say we had the shot under a Democrat president to dramatically increase detention beds, deportation flights, lock down the border, to be able to change the asylum laws, right. to be able to accelerate the process, no one would have believed it. And now no one actually wants to be able to fix it and says, I don't want to even debate it. I don't want to discuss it. We have to decide right. as Republicans, what are we going to actually do about the border? Leave it open or actually leave it closed? That is uh, James Lankford. One other element of this that we didn't mention first is this in so-called humanitarian parole. The administration set up an app system called the CBP-1 app to facilitate free entry and immediate work permits. So if you went to a port of entry, you had signed up on this app and you were you know, from Guatemala or somewhere else. As long as you followed that process, you were pretty much guaranteed getting a work authorization permit and be able to go into the interior. Now, this bill ends that CBP-1 app process and automatic work authorizations. It does allow for some work authorizations if you pass through the higher standards for asylum, but it also includes the ability for Department of Homeland Security to revoke that work authorization, which it doesn't have now if you violate some element of it, of the requirements. Uh, there is also here, Kim, something called emergency border shutdown provision, which is that if over the course of a one-week average of 5,000 migrants a day reach the border, which we've had for the most of the recent weeks, over the course of 5,000 a day on average over seven days, automatically the border shuts down quite a while until the Border Patrol folks can get the numbers down and the migrants processed. This is a really important element to this, Paul, because I think I would think of this as kind of a two-step question in that I think the authors of this bill, and by the way, just a quick note for James Langford, you know, my view is that it's divided between those who just like to go on television and do sound bites and those who actually do the hard work of diving into policy. And Langford falls into the second category and we are fortunate to have people that are willing to do that work instead of just stand up and complain. But I think the authors of this bill, their goal here is that by having this accelerated process in which decisions are going to be made in 90 days, a lot of people are going to be turned away right at their initial screening. But even if you manage to get through and wait until an interview, that's going to be done in 90 days. And the idea is that is supposed to be a huge disincentive for people to make the trip unless they think they really have the goods to get in. Because right now, the entire incentive system is get in, have a kid or two here, make it that much harder. You know, maybe your number will never come up. You're just going to be here 10 years, by which point it'll be too late for them to remove you. But by making it quick, the entire message is don't come unless you think that you can get in. But if that is not a big enough message, then they have this provision where if the number of people who are showing up at the border, as you say, hits 5,000 a day, on average for a week, or if on any one day it exceeds 8,500. And let me be clear, these are not people crossing over, it's just the number of people showing up. Then the border shuts down, okay, automatically. No presidential discretion here, right? Almost none. No presidential discretion. The bill does give the president his own discretion to shut it down if the numbers hit only 4,000. 
So if the president thinks that we're headed toward a problem, they can actually invoke it at a slightly lower threshold. But then the border does not reopen until those numbers stay below 75% of that threshold for an average of a week too. Now, I want to be clear, this doesn't count. There is a certain number of people, about 1,400, that still make appointments, believe it or not, all the right way. They don't just show up. They make an appointment. Those will continue. But this is just the number of people. If they're just showing up at the border, all those pictures we've been seeing the last months, there's going to be automatic border shutdowns. Yeah, that's really interesting. Kate, the role of Jim Lankford here has been really pretty interesting. This guy's no squish. I mean, he's not a Susan Collins moderate from Maine. He's a bedrock conservative, and he'd been just deputized to get into this. And it really is. Uh, dived into the details. We got a briefing from him on Saturday on much of this, and he clearly is conversant on all of these details. And for his work on this, he's being vilified as some kind of sellout. And you might as well think that he is, for what you hear on the political right, Bernie Sanders. Right, Paul. I mean, if you go back to the fall, the reason that Langford was tapped to lead negotiations for the Republican conference is because he had credibility across the conference and especially with conservatives. He replaced Tom Coburn in the Senate. He is a well-known social conservative, has an A-plus pro-life rating. He voted against the omnibus bill, this big spending bill. He is certainly would not even make any list of moderates in Congress. And so what's, I think, all the more depressing is that this bill and the outrage in response to it threatens to consume his career, too. And going back to what Kim was saying, there are folks in the conference, there's workhorses, there's show horses, they're split into two. And I think Langford is a workhorse. And I think it's regrettable because, for instance, if you go back to the Trump administration, one thing that Trump talks about all the time is his 2017 tax reform, how great it made the economy. Well, that, as we know, was written by people in Congress who actually knew something about tax reform. So the idea that we're just going to run out anybody in the Republican Party who takes the time to study the issues. And I mean, Langford has been in this on months. He was talking about how the parole debate itself took a month, has really deep dived into these issues and tried to come up with something that would actually help solve the problem while in divided government and is now considered a sellout, I think is just an incredibly dispiriting development. All right. We're going to take another break. And when we come back, we'll talk more about the opposition to the bill that's forming on the right and the left and some of their reasons when we come back. Join the Wall Street Journal at the Future of Everything Festival on May 21st to 23rd in New York City, where diverse global newsmakers share unique perspectives on navigating a changing world. Immerse yourself in live performances, explore pioneering technologies, and indulge in the city's inventive culinary scene. As a podcast listener, enjoy 20% off current ticket rates with code PODCAST. Visit wsj.com slash f-o-e-f podcast to secure your spot. Don't forget, you can reach the latest episode of Potomac Watch anytime. Just ask your smart speaker. Play the Opinion Potomac Watch podcast. That is, Play the Opinion Potomac Watch podcast. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Potomac Watch. Welcome back. I'm Paul Gigo with the Wall Street Journal Potomac Watch podcast, and I'm here with Kate O'Dell and Kim Strassel. We're talking about the Senate draft bill on border security and aid to Ukraine. And let's listen to a Republican in the House, Michael McCall, normally a sensible fellow. He's head of the Foreign Affairs Committee. Talk about the bill. I think what we wanted in the House were significant 
uh, you know, uh, political asylum claim reforms, like remain in Mexico. That is not in this bill. In fact, uh, when he talks about political asylum, they take out the prosecutor, the ICE prosecutor, and the judge and allow USCIS to remove the immigrant into the United States with an ankle bracelet or work permit. Um, I think that's going to provide a pull factor, not a push factor, outside the United States. We have a lot of questions about it. Uh, I applaud them for trying to get something done. But at the same time, um, I don't think this is going to be a fix. I like Mike McCall, uh, Kim. Me too. And I think he's a force for good. But I have to say, it's the first time in history that I've ever seen an ankle bracelet described as a pull factor for any reason. I think I'll enter the state so I can get into an ankle bracelet and be called upon at any minute to be hauled in by security. Not ideal, I think. The other point he makes, though, is about Remain in Mexico, which, of course, was a Trump-era policy. And that's where migrants had to stay in Mexico before their asylum claims could be heard. That was ended by President Biden. There was a long legal proceeding that went to the Supreme Court on this. And the Supreme Court said that President Biden could, in fact, decide not to continue that. The uh, negotiators said that that was something the Democrats didn't want. What do you make of the explanation for why it wasn't in the bill? Well, for one thing, let me just point out that in some ways, this border shutdown provision, granted it won't happen all the time, but in some ways is a bit of a remain in Mexico provision in that if the border shuts down, there's a lot of people in Mexico and they're not getting over the border as long as people keep coming. So there's an element of that. Look, I think this is a place where the Biden administration ground in its heels in particular because of the litigation and the court fight that you mentioned. Also, let's be clear, the dynamics have changed between the two countries, and you can't just set up a Remain in Mexico program without the buy-in of the Mexican government. There were a lot of negotiations and complex diplomatic decisions that were made around that last program. And I don't think anyone wanted to sit around and hinge a congressional piece of legislation on the question of whether or not such a diplomatic deal could be done again. In some ways, Paul, in fact, in most ways, this is still a better scenario. Look, if your overall goal is to discourage people to come to the United States unless they have a very good chance of getting in. Which makes more sense to you? To keep this wide open asylum process where all you have to do is claim you have the most baseline credible fear and you have a very high probability of getting in ultimately, but maybe you have to remain in Mexico for a little bit while you wait for that process to happen. Or you have a 90-day process here in the United States where it makes clear up front that your chances of getting in are very, very low unless you truly are in fear of your life. And that moreover, your entire stay beginning to end is going to happen in under a couple of months. That's going to be a greater motivation in my mind for people not to come in the first place, notwithstanding the lure of living in an ankle bracelet for a while. (laughs) <laughs> just to, just, and by the way, the number of people who would be in that ankle bracelet, there are very few, right? If the detention system, uh, and we're getting additional beds, up to 50,000 beds at any one time for detention while they await asylum adjudication, it will only be if that system is overwhelmed and some other cases not very expansive 
would they have to wear that ankle bracelet and have to have a curfew where they would also have to report to wherever they were staying? And Paul, I think it's worth noting, too, that they've also done provisions to allow for that speeding up process to actually happen in reality, meaning they're removing a bunch of this from the court system. And I think that's worth explaining as well. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that is very, very significant because the courts have mucked up order enforcement for a very long time. There's no question about it. Just to put a figure on this for our listeners. So if you come to the border and you claim asylum and you say, I have a credible fear of persecution back home, right now, the the figure has been about 75% of those are waived into the country. For those who then return for their final asylum adjudication, whenever that is, two years, four years, right now, it's upwards of seven to 10 in some cases, only about 25% of those are found to actually have warranted asylum. So what we're having here now is a system that would essentially bring that final adjudication criteria up front so that you wouldn't have all of this long wait in the country and people, there will be decision made up front within 90 days whether to deport them or leave them into the country. Kate, there are some other details here that are in the bill that might be jumped on. There's the Afghan Adjustment Act as part of this for Afghans who came here after our departure from Afghanistan. That will be seized on by some, but these people, they're already here. And this would regularize their process and make sure that they weren't deported back to the tender mercies of the Taliban. There's also some more legal visas each year. One illustration, not a lot, but I think it's, what is it, 50,000, Kate? For various purposes. But the one example here is that people who are here legally on so-called H-1B work visas, when their children turn 18, those children are deported, even if they're in college. So those children would be eligible for legal visas as well. Any other points you want to make about the merits here? Well, I think one other point about the ankle bracelet discussion we were having, too, is that there are increased penalties for those who violate those rules. And so that also changes the dynamic. I mean, everything you're describing taken together, it really changes the underlying incentives about whether you're going to try to make a bid to come to the United States, which... Even if you just get six or eight years working in the interior, for a lot of people is worth the effort. Now, if you're at 90 days, it just completely changes the underlying economics. So really, I think there is a streamlining here that will turn people around faster. And I think that is the most significant. But to your point about adding some extra visas, I mean, those high-skill visas, you've been through trying to get them for an employee. It's just a lottery. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes, I yes, have. And every year there are far more applicants than those who win the lottery. And so it just rolls the dice. I mean, it's quite clear for, it's been clear for some time. We need thousands more of those to keep high-skill workers who are already here. I mean, keep in mind on the right, it's always said we don't support illegal immigration, but we're okay with legal immigration. Well, these minor visa increases are also becoming a magnet for opposing the bill. So which is it? But those, I think, are important provisions of the bill, too. All right. Well, the politics of this, Kim, are turning negative very fast. American right, Trumpians are denouncing it, many of them even before they read the thing. Mike Johnson, the speaker, Steve Scalise, the majority leader, both say there's not even going to be a vote in the House on this. Chuck Schumer may move this in the Senate, try to move this this week. That might be a mistake. You want to give this a chance to air out so people can't say, I'm voting against it because I haven't had a chance to read it. But Paul, I mean, on that point, I mean, they're voting this week to open debate on the merits of the bill. It's just funny to me that folks are saying we need more time to read it, but also we completely oppose it already and we can't be persuaded. Excellent point. So it's not a final passage vote. It's just the barrier of opening the bill to debate and consideration. But I mean, Donald Trump uh, almost certainly will oppose this. 
many Republicans will oppose it even without reading it. I mean, I think the danger here for them, Kim, is that if they do oppose this and don't even give it a vote, then what you're going to be doing is you're taking some ownership of what happens at the border for the next year, and you're giving the Democrats an argument that says, we gave you all of this opportunity. Here, the president was willing to sign this, and you still won't support it. You don't really want to do anything about the border. Yeah. Do you want to put yourself in a situation where you can have equally poor handling and approval ratings on this as the president at the moment? I mean, right now, Republicans are given higher marks by voters on who they would trust more to handle this situation. But they're essentially standing up right now, not bothering to read this bill, saying, actually, don't trust us because we care about having the political issue more. Right now, too, you have the House also maneuvering to try to reset the terms of all this, but with another standalone bill on Israel. And by the way, there is Israel money in this broader Senate bill, so they're trying to separate these out again. Of course, Mike Johnson has problems with his right yet yet again on that bill, which is why I agree with you, Paul. I think Chuck Schumer would be wiser to hold off on this a little bit, allow Langford to explain more, make the case, watch the House fall on its face again, which is likely to see what is going to be happening in Israel, and hope that that sharpens the stakes for everyone and understands the gravity of all of this, not just in terms of the border, but also in terms of our foreign allies and our ongoing conflicts right now. All righty. We will leave it there. Lots more to talk about this as the story evolves. But to thank you, Kate, and thank you, Kim. Thank you all for listening. We're here every day with Potomac Watch, and we would love to have you here tomorrow and the rest of the week. Thanks for listening.